You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Got to make sure the AC is on because it's about to get hot in here, y'all. Oh, nice. Steam it. I like that. Uh, Good morning, friends. Um, All jokes aside, I have been thinking a lot about fire this week in relation to uh, our sermon series. Is fire good or bad? Yes. Yes. It depends on who you ask. (laughs) I've learned this. If you ask someone from Alaska who's lived through Alaskan winters, fire is very good. It is necessary to stay alive in Alaska. You need fire. Phoenix, we even know this. Even though it feels like fire sometimes outside and we don't love that, in our homes, controlled fire and gas stoves and things like that helps clear bacteria out of our water, helps us cook healthy meals. Fire is necessary. And our culture knows this. We use the word fire to describe something good. Millennials and Gen Zers, come on. It's lit. It's fire. The fire emoji was the fifth most used emoji in America last year. I don't know if you guys knew that. We love throwing fire around to describe something good, right? But what if you ask someone whose home was burned down from arson if fire is a good thing? What if you ask someone whose skin has been irreparably damaged in a fiery wreck or ask the families of Vietnam villages in the 60s about fire? Suddenly, it's very, very bad, traumatic scarring to us. So fire is both good and bad. Yes, it's both. And the reason that image has kept sticking with me throughout the series is, I think in in Glittering Vices, what I've realized is that so much of our human emotion and desire can go one of two ways. It's like fire. It can go really, really good. We can channel it for really, really beautiful and good things, or we can channel it for destruction, utter destruction to ourselves and the world. That's why Christians for centuries have had this framework of the seven deadly sins, because they've wanted to give us Examples of the ways that our emotions and desires might actually go wrong and become destructive to us, and then help us channel those in the right ways. Every week of this series, this has been true, right? Vainglory. We talked about pride and vainglory on Ash Wednesday. It's the destructive side of a good desire for approval and love. Greed is the destructive side of a good desire for valuing and cherishing the gifts of God. Lust, what we talked about last week, it's the destructive side of a good desire for intimacy and love. All of those emotions are like fire. They can go one of two ways. And I think maybe the best example of any of the seven deadly sins in this principle of of our emotions and desires being like fire, the best example maybe is anger. Anger, the stuff that arises deep within us when we witness mistreatment in the world or when we experience mistreatment in the world. And the truth is, we have to learn how to deal with that because we live in a world where that's pretty regular. Maybe it's abuse in relationships to you or someone near to you. Maybe it's unequal treatment in a job. Maybe it's oppression from institutions or individuals driven by prejudice or hate. Or maybe it's just those little selfish choices that people tend to make that harm us or others. That's part of living in a world where people can make choices. Sometimes they make bad ones. And sometimes it makes us angry. And on one hand, the fire of anger is a really good thing. And believe it or not, the Bible actually affirms that anger can be a really, really good thing. Take, for instance, a guy named Jesus, who the Bible sees as a pretty good example of behavior. Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, we hear this story. Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man 
was there who had a withered hand. And they, that's the religious leaders, hypocritical religious leaders, were watching him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come forward. And then he said to them, those religious leaders, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at the hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus gets angry, but notice why. It's because the religious institution, the people who are supposed to be the vehicles of God's love and grace in the world are utterly ignoring a man in need. He's angry at injustice. If you keep reading in Mark, you see another example, Mark 10. People were bringing children to Jesus in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was angry, indignant, and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Jesus got angry. Again, why? Because these earnest, curious, loving children were being turned away. He was angry at injustice. And keep going in the New Testament. There's actually this really ambiguous reference. It's hard to interpret. Ephesians 4.26 says this. Be angry. Be angry. But do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. This is an imperative. This is a command. Be angry at the right things in the right way. The Bible sees the fire of anger as a really good thing, and here's why. Anger always starts with love. If you love someone or something, and you see the thing you love being threatened, you get angry, because love always seeks the good of the beloved. Love is the thing that sparks anger in us. If you want to know what you love most in the world, pay attention to what you get most angry at. That's a sure path to understand what you love. There's a great quote from a book called Hope Has Its Reasons by Becky Pippert. She describes it this way. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. We get angry. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. The more a father loves his son, the more he's angry at the drunkard, the liar, the traitor in him. Fire of anger is like an emotional alarm going off in us, and ignoring it or suppressing it would actually mean being out of touch with the reality of our world. We should get angry for the things that made Jesus angry. When we see something bad threatening something good, when life is being threatened by death, when health is being threatened by injury, when joy is being threatened by pain, get angry. If we don't feel that, then we're really preventing ourselves from rightly loving our neighbors. Friends, sometimes in the Bible, it's a sin not to get angry. John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, put it this way. He said, he who is not angry when there is cause sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. It fosters negligence and incites not only the wicked, but the good to do wrong. Anger's good. But... A big but. If you keep reading in your Bible, you'll also find all sorts of warnings against anger. Colossians 3.8. 
But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. James 1.9, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Proverbs 14.29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but one who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 19.11, those who with good sense are slow to anger, and it is their glory to overlook an offense. For all the examples in the Bible that encourage good anger, there are dozens more warning us of its destructive power. And so like fire, we need to be really careful with how we channel it, with how we use it, because if we don't do it well, it can burn everything around us. There's a famous English proverb that I think puts it cleverly. He is a fool who cannot be angry, but he is wise who will not remain so. And that destructive side of anger, the fire that burns out of control, it's actually been included for a long time in Christians' lists of the seven deadly sins. We call it wrath, which sounds really intense, right? Wrath. Wrath is excessive anger. And most times wrath, when it pops up in our hearts and in our lives, reveals itself in in one of five main ways, sometimes all five of these. Wrath gets angry at the wrong things, expresses anger in the wrong ways, is angry too easily, so it's quick-tempered, gets angrier than it should, so anger that is disproportionate to the thing that's in front of us, and it stays angry longer than it should. Anybody feel like they've exemplified those in their lives at some point? If we're being honest with ourselves about our own feelings of anger, more often than not, they look a lot like this and less like Jesus' anger. We don't often think it in the moment, right? When you fly off the handle, no one's ever thinking, man, I'm in the wrong. You always think you're right. But then when you get a chance to cool off, you're like, man, I was being a fool. You know why you thought that? Because you were. You were being a fool. Like that's, that's what was happening there. Guys, we are designed to feel angry about the right things, but more often than not, we're plagued by wrath, disordered anger. We need to be healed of that so that we can rightly channel this emotion, which is supposed to be connected to love, and embody it in the world in the way that Jesus did. So the question is, how do we heal from it, right? How do we become people who not only feel anger over the right things, but learn to channel it in a way that produces life and not destruction? And thankfully, Jesus had some words for us on this. He saw the destructive power of wrath in his own day, and he taught his disciples not only how to address it, how to identify it in themselves, but also how to rightly channel it so they could produce life. So friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me. We're going to read uh, some words of Jesus here. This is in uh, Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to be today. Uh, Matthew is the first book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. Matthew 5, verse 21. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words will be up here behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be thrown into prison. And truly, I tell you, 
You will never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. Dallas Willard famously spoke those words as a summary statement of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And I think he nails it. See, when Jesus came onto the scene in first century Palestine, he came with a single primary thesis statement. You guys remember thesis statements? High school English, you're welcome. Yeah. Jesus had a primary thesis statement in Matthew 4, the chapter just before what we read. This was his thesis statement. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is language that would have made a lot of sense to his first century Jewish audience. Because these were people who were longing for what the scriptures called the kingdom of God. A kingdom where all things that are crooked will be made straight. Where brokenness will be healed. Where wrongs will be forgiven. Where our ecology will be restored. And Jesus is saying that that kingdom is at hand. It has come in him. The redemption and restoration of all things. And he's inviting people to participate in that kingdom. He's saying, this is your opportunity. You can be a part of the redemption and restoration of all things. Sounds like a great deal. And so crowds flooded to him. That happened immediately. He was healing and teaching and embodying the kingdom. And so crowds press in on him. And then in Matthew 5, he climbs up a little hill. And at the top of that hill, he starts to speak. So the crowds could hear him. He wanted to be at an elevated position. And this is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' largest uh, consistent block of teaching or put-together block of teaching in the Bible that we have. And in it, he's describing what it means to participate in the redemption and restoration of all things. This is what new life looks like. If you want to be someone who is transformed and transforms the world, this is what it looks like. And over and over again, he keeps harping on the same idea. Namely, that participating in the kingdom always goes deeper than skin deep. True redemption and restoration of all things is not just a change of outward behavior. It's not just a bunch of moral laws. It is an utter transformation of our hearts. And the reason Jesus harps on that over and over is because he remembers something we often forget. The way we live and move in the world out there is always dependent on the person we are in here. When we want to make things change quickly in our world, we often just want to change behaviors, right? Just give me new things to do, give me new rules to follow, and I'll follow those rules. But the reality is, That's not actually where our character begins. It starts much, much deeper. We always live from our heart. And so that means if you want to become people of true life and love and peace, Jesus says, simple religious ritual or rule won't cut it. That's helpful. It can be a good structure, but it will not change you or the world. We need to go deeper. We need to start with our hearts which is what it means to repent in his thesis statement. That's what it means. Repentance can sometimes sound like a fancy theological word. All that means is to turn around. It means to acknowledge that in the center of my being, in my heart, in the deepest parts of who I am, I have been both a victim of the broken world, but also have contributed to the broken world in some way or another. And so I need an utter change of my heart. I need to turn my heart in another direction and be shaped by something different. I need a radical paradigm shift of how I see myself and the world around me. It's what it means to repent. And if we want to see real lasting healing in our lives in the world, we can't just do behaviors. We've got to go to the heart. The most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become.
With me? So, in order to illustrate this, Jesus in the sermon, to illustrate this, this heart transformation that we need, he gives six specific examples in a row. Six specific ways we need to get underneath our behavior and deal with our hearts. The first one he gives is in verse 21. Right away, he talks about the outward behavior thing, the law. He quotes the Ten Commandments, the outward measure of righteousness. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. And the word for murder there just means intentional killing of another human being. And this is like, yeah, no, we're on board. Like, pretty basic stuff here, right? I don't think anyone in this room would be like, nah, I don't know, right? And many times we're like, cool, didn't murder, check, I'm good, right? And that's what many people in his day thought. I haven't killed my neighbor. I may have thought something. I didn't kill him, right? But notice Jesus doesn't stop with the outward behavior. He goes deeper. And he clarifies the spirit of the law. He says that if we really want to become the people we were made to be, we don't get there just by avoiding killing people. He says, but I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. Now things are heating up. Because the same term that's applied to murder, judgment, is applied to anger here. And to be clear, he's not saying murder and anger are the same things. He's saying they extend from the same place. The murder and the evil you see out there in the world starts somewhere. It starts here. And so if you want to stop that from happening in your life and the world, you've got to start it here. You've got to start it with your heart. Otherwise, it's going to get out of control real quick. And so like a good spiritual doctor, Jesus charts a path to routing wrath for us, routing anger. He shows us two things in this teaching. He shows us the destructive symptoms of wrath and the prescription for healing wrath. It's destructive symptoms and the prescription for healing it. First, the symptoms. First thing he notices or points out here that we notice as we read. Wrath burns our bodies. The word Jesus uses for anger here, it refers to a consistent, ongoing, simmering disposition of our hearts. So remember, anger in the Bible, the emotion, can be a good thing. Jesus is not condemning the emotion. We're not supposed to be stoic and feel nothing. What he's describing here is anger that we hold on to. Anger that we let sit. Anger that boils within us. The active decision to carry that thing around and then to allow that emotion to shape how we view others and how we act towards them. One scholar uh, I follow described it this way, I think really aptly, this word. He said, if everything makes you mad, everything isn't the problem. Everything makes you mad, everything isn't the problem. There's something simmering in you. And the truth is that that sort of wrath, that simmering wrath, it's actually the, the default posture of most of our world. It's how most people live and how most of us are encouraged to live. In fact, sociologists have started to refer to our culture this way. They call it an outrage culture. There's persistent, simmering outrage that lies just beneath the surface of our world. And it lashes out in really ugly ways all the time. Take road rage, for instance, right? This is maybe the most obvious example to many of us. According to a recent CNN study, reported cases of road rage have increased by 500% in the last 10 years in the U.S. 92% of people polled in 2023 said that they witnessed or experienced an act of road rage at some point in the last year. 92%. We have vehicles that can literally murder other people, and we're taking them and slamming them into each other all the time. Outrage culture. Wrath. And you don't just need to be driving a car to see this, right? Anyone with a social media account has seen this. The algorithms on social media are designed to feed us increasingly angry 
content because it draws the most likes and eyeballs. The computers are teaching us wrath. A recent Yale study showed that increased social media usage is directly connected to increased dispositions of anger and more angry behavior. The more you use it, the angrier you get. The average millennial uses it more than five hours a day. You wonder why outrage culture is a thing. We're breathing in this oxygen, and friends, it's not just out there in the world. It's really easy to think, yeah, all those kids, right, with their phones, all those road rage people, it's here, too. It's in our lungs. Here's some questions to think through, to identify where wrath might actually be simmering in you in some way. Have you ever held something against someone, and then when it was particularly convenient, brought that thing back up in order to give them pain, really get back at them? Have you ever resented someone because of what they've done and then viewed every action they took through that dismissive lens that degrades them? Have you made consistent sarcastic comments that subtly undermine someone who's close to you? Have you constantly brought up what someone did or said in conversation after conversation to deface the reputation? Gossip is a surefire expression of wrath. Or maybe, maybe for you it's just quietly in your own heart You've just longed and savored the failure of someone else that you don't like or that's harmed you in some way. Maybe you're just waiting for that and you hold an image of them that longs for their destruction. The truth is we all carry this in our lives and it's actively burning our bodies. It's killing us. Study after study that have come out over the last few years have increased or have linked increased anger, simmering anger like this to high blood pressure, anxiety, an increased risk for stroke and heart attack. When we do this, we kill ourselves. I like how uh, Frederick Buechner put it in his book, uh, Wishful Thinking. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you're given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. So wrath burns our bodies. But it doesn't stop there. It also burns our communities. Jesus continues in his description here of anger, uh, using two words that kind of exemplify how this anger reveals itself. He says, if you insult a brother or sister, and if you say, you fool, the insult and the you fool, he says, you'll be liable to judgment if you do those two things. And there's two different words that he uses. The word insult there is the word racha. It's a very strong Aramaic word for contempt, calling someone an idiot, a blockhead. It takes the other person and treats them with contempt. And then the second word here, the word that is translated in English, you fool, it's describing the sort of person who's utterly morally depraved. So not just intelligence-wise, but you're actually saying, you're just a jerk. You're a scumbag. Right? It treats the other person as less than you in some way. It elevates you over them morally. And as it turns out, friends, what Jesus is telling us here is that anger, when it exhibits itself in these sorts of words towards other people, it burns our communities. It burns bridges to one another. Remember that old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Garbage. Garbage. Words hurt. Words matter. Words sever ties. The way we speak to one another 
matters. And so just reflect on it in your own life. Have you ever had those moments where you fly off the handle and then you're like, what have I done? And it's created friction for you. And then sometimes you want to double down because you're like, well, it wasn't that bad. Get over it, man. And then it creates all of this friction between you and others. Friends, when wrath is the persistent fuel for our language towards one another, it will only burn relationships. There's an author named Garrett Kaiser who actually wrote a book on anger in his own life and reflecting on its influence. He put it this way. He said, my anger has too often seemed out of proportion that is too great or too little, more often too great, for the occasion that gave rise to it. My anger has more often distressed those I love than it has afflicted those at whom I was angry. You ever had that happen in your life? My anger has not carried me far enough towards changing what legitimately enrages me. Friends, no one likes or grows or heals when they're around a persistently angry person. It doesn't happen. And I'll be honest about how this shows up for me, too. Like, this is not something that's just for us. Guys, I'm super, super good at being self-righteous about the self-righteous. I'm so good at it. You guys should see. So great at calling those people out. But do you see what's happening in me? I'm exhibiting the very thing that I'm trying to condemn. And the people around me will notice it, right? And the people who I let into my life, who I trust to speak into that, like, hey, maybe evaluate that a little bit. Where's that coming from in you? Why does that come up in you? Is it maybe burning your community in ways you don't realize? Burning your relationship, burning the way that you see other people. So anger, friends, it causes us to throw words around like weapons, and it burns our communities. And finally, the third thing Jesus points out here is that it burns our wills. Each time we give ourselves in to persistent anger and wrath like this, we become people incapable of living any other way. That's why Jesus uses the image he does here. He he says, uh, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Uh, The word he uses there is the word Gehenna, uh, referred to an actual place that was just south of the city of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom, historically, was like the garbage dump for the city. It's where they dump all their garbage, burn it all. Uh, It was also a place in Israel's checkered history uh, where the Canaanites would go and sacrifice their children to idols. Uh, So really just ugly place, not a place you want to spend time or think about you being in. What Jesus is saying here, he's using this visceral image to say that this is what wrath leads you to. It leads you to utterly burn your very humanity, your will. Eventually you become someone less and less human and more and more hellish by giving into this over and over. I like how N.T. Wright described it in his commentary on this passage. He said, every time you decide to let your anger smolder on inside of you, you are becoming a little less than fully human. You are deciding to belittle yourself. And if you are the sort of person who sneers at everybody and calls them names, the fire inside of you may eventually become all that's left of you, as Gehenna, the smoldering garbage dump of ancient Jerusalem, may take you over completely. And the data, friends, actually backs this up. That the more angry you are, the more angry you'll get. And the more you vent your anger, the more you're going to be angry. Uh, There was a psychological kind of movement in the middle of the 20th century I was reading about this week uh, that said that the best way to deal with anger is to vent it. Catharsis. Just let it out, punch a pillow really hard or something, and then you'll feel better. And what they found is after counseling people on that for decades, it actually does the opposite. That the more you vent your anger in that way, the angrier you'll be. 
There's a Psychology Today study that had a, an interview with a guy who talked about this. He said, recently a counselor told a parent whose child had anger problems to kick the furniture, to let their anger out. Well, my younger brother used to kick the furniture when he got mad. He's 32 years old now, and he still kicks the furniture. What's left of it? But he's also kicking his wife, his kids, and anything else that gets in his way. Last week, he kicked the television out the window when it was closed. Friends, when we let rats simmer, and when we vent it like this, it burns our wills. It destroys our ability to think any other way, to live any other way. It destroys our humanity. Welcome to church, guys. Notice, Jesus doesn't leave us with just the symptoms of wrath. He also gives us a prescription. That's always Jesus' goal. When he calls something out in us, he's always doing it in order to heal us and invite us into something new. And so the second thing we see in this passage is the prescription to deal with wrath. There's three things we see. He says we need to start with ourselves, we need to seek reconciliation, and we need to shape friends. Start with yourself, seek reconciliation, shape friends. First, start with yourself. Verse 23. Jesus gives an instruction. He says, when you are offering your gift at the altar, that is when you're doing your religious thing, if you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. You see what he's saying? He's saying that if you want to eradicate wrath from your life and from the world, don't start with the ways people have wronged you. Start with the ways you've wronged others. Do some evaluation of the ways that you might have actually harmed your brother or your sister. Start with yourself. This is an utter act of humility because it assumes that I am a work in progress and that I by no means have the right to judge anyone else for their behavior. I need to urgently focus on changing my own heart before I go and fix anyone else. Jesus is saying when we get angry, we need to remember to live day by day reflecting on the logs in our eyes first. That doesn't mean other people don't have specks in their eyes. They do. But we need to start with our logs. And we can only ever rightly deal with our anger when we start there. Otherwise, it will always turn into self-righteousness. If you don't start with yourself, you will approach the other person as somehow less than you, as somehow lower than you, and you will do it from a place of self-righteousness. You'll say things like, I'm not angry. No, I'm not angry because I don't get angry because you couldn't affect me because I'm better. Right? You see that line of logic that often, I'm not mad. They didn't make me mad. I can't be affected by them because I'm a good person. No, start with yourself. Don't just go to them and become self-righteous. Doesn't mean we don't deal with injustice in our world. We do, but we start with our own stuff. And then second thing Jesus teaches us to do here is to seek reconciliation. After you've done that self-examination, after you start with yourself, move immediately to reconcile with your brother or sister. Don't let division or wrath hold on for any length of time. Get up out of church and go. And not only get up out of church and go, go a long distance. The people he's speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount lived in Galilee, which was about a three days journey to the temple. These people would have drugged their sacrifice to the temple three days, laid it there, realized they have something to do, say, sorry man, hold my animal, I'm going to walk three days back because I've got to reconcile with my brother or sister. And then come three days back afterward. Spend an extra six days without worshiping in order to reconcile. Because what Jesus knows here is that our fidelity to God is always measured by our relationships to others. Our fidelity to God is always measured by our relationships to others. And God will not commune with us if we refuse to commune with our neighbors. 
We need relationships this direction in order for this direction to work. We need immediate action to resolve, to reconcile. And again, this is incredibly vulnerable and humbling. It's always, guys, it's always harder to be the first person to say, I'm sorry. It's so much harder. It's so much easier, like Beekner said, to just hold on to anger. But Jesus makes it clear that being the first person to say, I'm sorry, seeking reconciliation is the only path to healing. If we don't do this, we'll only ever perpetuate the same cycles. And all you have to do is look at history to see his point play out. If things don't get healed immediately, it goes on to breed more and more conflict. It often happens that a dispute between two people descends to their spouses, and then to their families, and then to their grandkids, and then to their tribes, and then to their nations, and all of a sudden you have a war. If at the very beginning two people had just reasonably said, I'm sorry, and reasonably resolved the conflict, none of that would have happened. When we look out there at the world and say, all this stuff needs to stop, it has to start with us reconciling with our neighbors. That's where all of this begins. Guys, I, I can't tell you what to do with your anger. You have to decide what you get to do with your anger. But Jesus makes it clear the only way to healing in life is reconciliation. The only way you're going to find true freedom is reconciliation. And what's fascinating, the earliest Christians took this so seriously that they refused to gather before they reconciled with one another. They refused to get together and worship God until they did this. There's instructions in an old document called the Didache that talks about this. They say, when you come together for your breaking of bread and meal and singing and the rest, before you do any of that, make sure that you reconcile with one another. Make sure you confess to one another and forgive one another. And if you haven't done that, you shouldn't come. They took this seriously because they know that worship of God is always directly connected to love of my neighbor. And our world desperately needs those sorts of people no one in our world admits that they're wrong. You guys notice that? No one admits they're wrong. And when they're wrong, they double down on how right they are. That's what our world is teaching us to do. What if the church lived this way instead? What if we became the people so quick to say, I'm sorry, so quick to reconcile that conflict never even sat for minutes, that it just resolved then and there? What might that do in our communities, in our families, in our world? So start with yourself and seek reconciliation. And then finally, friends, the third prescription to wrath is seeking to shape friends. And the final image that Jesus gives us here is a coming to terms with someone before they take you to court. And that's always a good starting point. Like if someone's taking you to court, hey, maybe sort it out before things get really ugly. But this should run deeper too. It's not just about going to court. We should seek to creatively heal and resolve conflicts before they escalate. We should seek creative resolutions to our wrath. We should not seek to try to take it out on them in court or take it out on them in some other tribunal. Jesus is saying that when wrath bubbles up, the only safe and sure way to destroy your enemy is to make them your friend. The only safe and sure way to destroy your enemy is to make them your friend. That's the only way to healthily deal with the fire of anger in us. Healthy anger, as Jesus' was at the beginning of the, the teaching, Healthy anger is always driven by love. Notice that when Jesus gets angry, what does he do? He heals. He restores the hand of the withered man. He says, children, come to me, and he blesses them. Creative responses are what should drive our anger. Nonviolent responses to the violence that others inflict upon us. 
One of, I think, the most creative and powerful examples of this, it's one that resonates with us. We just celebrated him a little over a month ago, but Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement, I think, was an incredible example of what this sort of response to anger looks like. He had lots to be angry about. There were lots of people around him who were sparking that anger and saying, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to lash out. He refused. And you can actually read why he refused. It was shaped by the way of Jesus, his responses. I wanted to share this bit from a sermon that he wrote on loving your enemies that I think is, is perfect. It's a long one, but I think it's worthwhile. I want us to sit with this. Jesus said, love your enemies that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Of course, you say all this about loving enemies is not practical. Life is a matter of getting even, of hitting back, of doggy dog. Maybe in some distant utopia the idea will work, but not in the hard, cold world in which we live. My only answer is that mankind has followed the so-called practical way for a long time now, and it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of individuals and communities that surrendered to hatred and violence. And so for the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. This does not mean we abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of injustice, but we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure it. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. But throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour, and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day, we shall win freedom but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Turn your enemies into your friends. That's our response. It's vulnerable. Refuse to be sucked into the cycle of destructive wrath. And the reason that response is so compelling, friends, is the same reason we're in this room. It's because it's the response that Jesus had in his life, death, and resurrection. When our world was mired in wrath and violence, when our hearts were complicit in that wrath, look what God did. God became vulnerable in Jesus. He didn't stand far off and condemn. He didn't come in guns blazing. He entered the world and became a friend to sinners. He spoke the truth about us, about himself, about the world. And look what we did to him in response. We crucified. We took all our wrath, cast it upon him, and he took it. He absorbed it into himself. He took the consequences of that wrath. He let it kill him. And then he rose again. And he showed that all the power of wrath, of violence towards one another, of our dying condition, was dead. He left wrath in the grave, and he invited every single one of us to a new sort of power, to respond differently. Turn to him. Receive his forgiveness, and you'll have resurrection power to respond creatively in your anger, to love in your anger. 
Start with ourselves. Seek reconciliation, shape friends. And when you're angry friends, look to the cross. Always look to the cross. Because it's there you'll be transformed in the deepest parts of your heart. Let's pray, friends.